Titus 3, verses 8 through 15. Hear the word of God. This is a faithful saying, and these things I want you to affirm constantly, that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject a device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. And let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Father God, we thank you for this book. We thank you for the scripture we just read. And I pray that you would enable us to uh, grow in our sanctification, to uh, be uh, faithful stewards of the scripture. I pray that you would anoint my lips and enable me to faithfully preach it. And each one of us to live it out. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is the last sermon in the book of Titus, and I hope you've gained an appreciation for this little book. Uh, This is a a book where Paul indicates that uh, really service to God, ministry to God covers every area of life, doing dishes. It covers what we're doing at uh, the job site, at home, in church. It covers everything. And so we've looked at uh, godliness in the church, chapter 1, godliness in the home, chapter 2. And then the last part of chapter 2 into chapter 3, godliness in culture. Now, here's one of the challenges that these people faced when they're trying to influence society. They're thinking, how will we do this? Society is persecuting us. They don't want to be influenced, right? In fact, if we really take seriously Paul's words in chapter 2 and verse 12, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, That means we're going to get into trouble with some people because they like ungodliness and worldly lusts. If we really take seriously chapter 2, verse 14, where we're determined to avoid every lawless deed and to be zealous for good works, that's going to get us into trouble because that law is going to stick like a bone in some people's throats and it's going to bring on persecution, or at least it's going to bring on opposition and perhaps slander from other people. And so what was happening is that these Christians were to be living a life of antithesis where they could see there is a difference between believers and uh, unbelievers. And it uh, did attract some opposition. So how can they be effective? Paul tells them you can't just escape from the world. Your responsibility is to transform the world. And in verses 1 through 2, Paul has told them, how they are to do that more effectively. We're not talking here about the content. Some people make the mistake of thinking it's the content of what they say. In other words, yeah, live out God's word in the home and the family, but ignore it in the world. That's not what he is saying at all. He is saying, this is how I want you to be influencing and be applying that law that we've already talked about before. And uh, he tells them, The way they should do it is to be a loyal opposition, a winsome opposition, a gentle opposition, a humble opposition. Basically, he gives them seven characteristics that will make them godly citizens. And then he contrasts that with seven characteristics of ungodly citizens in verse 3. 
And <clears throat> when you contrast the two, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out which of those two is going to have a, a longer-term impact uh, upon people. You can think of Ronald Reagan. I think he, in part at least, exemplified the seven characteristics of verses 1 through 2, and it was hard even for his opponents to hate him. Whether you agreed with Reagan or not, you know, the way he went about it, it was hard for people to dislike him. Now, it is tough to do exactly what Paul told us to do in verses 1 through 2. And so he goes on, he talks about the powerful grace of God that can enable us. And it was a grace that did exactly that to us. And it's a grace that can conquer those persecutors. In fact, Paul was one of those persecutors that this grace and this love uh, uh, ministered to and changed uh, his heart. And so in verses 4 through 7, he indicates that by God's grace, this is possible, and Jesus has already modeled to us what it means to conquer through love. You see, Nero has declared a war of hate, of slander, of killing. Paul says, okay, we're going to declare a war of love, you know, and of humility and of good works, uh, and uh, we're not going to be overcome by this evil. Now, that brings us up to today. And Paul now ends this chapter with some miscellaneous pieces of advice that can help to make these people more effective as they live in culture. First principle, if they want to win this culture war uh, with Rome, was they needed to have trained troops. And that's what verse 8 is all about. Now, there are many Christians who would just as soon skip the teaching and let's get on into the practice. But this teaching is absolutely foundational if they're going to be making an impact on culture. And I think one of the problems in the modern church is that, yes, there are activists that are out there, but they're not working in the culture according to the biblical blueprints. They apply the blueprints to their families and to the church, but they're not doing it in the culture, and they're not having any impact in the culture either. They whine and they cry about why it is that we can be uh, more numerous than the pagans, and yet we're not having any impact. Well, one of the reasons is they're not using the biblical methods and they don't have the biblical, uh, the biblical goals and, and standards either. And so um, what, what needs to happen here is says we need to have a trained um, citizenry, uh, 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 troops who know the scriptures. Verse 8, this is a faithful saying. These things I want you to affirm constantly that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable to men. Now, he's already called for good works in the home and in the, in the church. Now he's saying, get out there in the society. Don't go into a monastery. I want you to be involved in good works in society itself. Now, when I read through that verse, if you've got different versions, you may have noticed as you were reading along that some versions have the word confidently instead of constantly. Uh, the Greek word bebaiousthai, uh, if you look it up in the dictionary, it means to have certainty or to be firmly established. And some translators uh, indicating, okay, if it's going to be uh, firmly established in their minds and it's going to be something they're confident in, we need to constantly remind them of it. And others say, no, it's a certainty in the minds of whoever it's talking about. And I think the certainty is definitely present in any of the definitions that are given uh, in the dictionary. And uh, here's the point. If we do not have certainty about the things that we believe, why should the world you know, except what we have. Uh, we don't have anything to offer them that they don't already have. The world is filled with ambiguity and um, 
with lack of absolutes. And I believe that there are people out there that are longing to have something that's a foundation, something that's solid that they can stand upon. Uh, they're not wanting the church to dish out the same kinds of relativism, and that's what's happening in many cases. They want an anchor. God has made us to need the certainty in our lives. Even if they say they don't want the certainty, there's something in them that is attracted to certainty. Uh, Somerset Maugham said, the only thing I know for sure is I don't know anything for sure. And there are a lot of people that have that same sense of uncertainty. It's a frustration for them. They don't know anything for sure. It's sort of like Pilate. He became cynical. He said, what is truth? When he talked with, uh, with Jesus. But here's the interesting point. Even the dogmatists of this world, when the world comes crumbling around them, humanism always is going to make the world crumble around people. doesn't matter how many different solutions that they have in society. When it crumbles around them, they feel this sense of insecurity. They need absolutes. And if the Christians are not providing those absolutes, uh, we're missing an incredible opportunity. Uh, like Gary North says, you can't beat something with nothing. Or is that not the expression, Rodney? It's something like that. You can't beat something with nothing, you know. We've got to have something to replace, and so it needs to be a trained citizenry. Now, it's important to realize that the reason we can be certain about these things is not because we're so clever. Far from it. It's because we're giving them the Scripture. The God who made everything and knows all things can't be mistaken about those things. He is the one who has given us these Scriptures. And so as we share these Scriptures in an uncertain world, we can give an anchor to people that if God has prepared their hearts, their hearts can, um, can uh, latch onto. God's given us a manufacturer's manual. It tells us why things are going wrong out there in the world and what we can offer uh, uh, to the people. Now, one of the verses that has really ministered to me right from the time I was probably about 20 years old was a verse that was smack dab in one of the genealogies. If you skipped over the genealogies, you would have missed it. And it's uh, a verse about the sons of Issachar. He's listing name after name after name, and all of a sudden he has to interrupt. He says, these guys are so great, I've got to give you some epigram of honor. Here's what it says. 1 Chronicles 12, 32. Of the children of Issachar, who had an understanding of the times, to know what Israel ought to do. And so here's the question. Do you have God's perspective on the times in which we live? Can you bring the unchanging word to apply in this changing world? That's what's needed in the trained troops who are going out to make a difference, to conquer society for King Jesus. Now, notice that these... Uh, are not just answers for afterlife, you know, for how to get to heaven. These are answers that deal with the here and now, with the good works that they're commanded to be engaged in. Titus 3, uh, verse 8 goes on to say that those who have believed in God should be careful to maintain good works. That's the result of living out the Bible. Uh, the Bible is a book on living. It's about discipleship, not just head knowledge, but unless we have the head knowledge, we can't live it out. And then Paul ends the verse by saying, these things are good and profitable to men. Now, the question to be asking in church is not whether Phil Kaiser brings something interesting and uh, something entertaining. The question to ask is, is it good? Is it profitable? Is it going to make a difference in our lives? Uh, what kind of transforming effect does the word uh, have, you know, when it's applied in society, when it's applied uh, in the family? 
one of the readers of a British magazine uh, wrote an article saying, you know, ministers spend a lot of time on sermons, and he didn't understand why. He didn't see the relevance of sermons. Uh, He said, Dear Sir, I noticed that ministers seem to set a great deal of importance on their sermons and spend a great deal of time in preparing them. I have been attending services quite regularly for the past 30 years, and during that time, if I estimate correctly, I have listened to no less than 3,000 sermons. But to my consternation, I discover I cannot remember a single one of them. I wonder if a minister's time might be more profitably spent on something else. Sincerely, and he signed his name. Well, there was a flurry of uh, uh, pro and con letters that uh, went into the newspaper over the next three weeks. And the last one that was put into the newspaper uh, said this, My dear sir, I've been married for 30 years. During that time, I've eaten 32,850 meals, mostly of my wife's cooking. Suddenly I've discovered I cannot remember the menu of a single meal, and yet I received nourishment from every one of them. I have the distinct impression that without them, I would have starved to death long ago, sincerely, and he signed his name. Now, that's true. I think there is some preaching that starves people to death, and it ought not to be. But the Word of God preached is for our sanctification, for our growth. It's for the transformation of this world for King Jesus. And it's very, very important that we listen to it. Now, Hendrickson points out that when it talks about it's profitable to men, it's mankind. It's not just believers that it's profitable to. It's profitable to mankind as a whole. When we are bringing God's Word out into society... You know, we have this idea we've got to apologize for it. No, we're bringing them exactly what they need. No, no apologies needed. We're bringing salt and light, and salt and light is desperately needed in this decaying world. <clears throat> Noah Webster, who's the author of Webster's Dictionary, said, The moral principles and precepts contained in the Scriptures ought to form the basis of all our civil constitutions and laws. All the miseries and evils which men suffer from vice, crime, ambition, injustice, oppression, slavery, and war proceed from their despising or neglecting the precepts contained in the Bible. And so, yes, the Bible is good and it's profitable for all people. Before they're going to win their war with uh, Rome, they're going to need to know what it means to be salt and light. And this is one of the reasons why we're starting up Dominion Institute. There's such a desperate need, I think, for getting the word out there. Now, verses 9 through 11 are also important in seeking to influence society. Paul wants Titus and the church to avoid getting caught up in unnecessary debates and scandals and, and uh, tensions and arguments And, of course, he's arguing with the the Judaizers once again. But I think this is so important of a word for some of the debates that are going on here in the States. He says, But avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and useless. Reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Paul is basically saying, Look, guys, make sure that the only offense you bring is the offense of the Scripture. I mean, the Scripture is plenty offensive enough. You don't need to add to it, you know, with your own offensive behaviors and attitudes. He says, make sure that when you bring God's Word to bear in the lives of people, it's not your offense, but it's the offense of Scripture is the only offense that they have to face. These Judaizers hated the Gentiles, and... uh, Uh, what was happening is they had brought all kinds of baggage into the church that was making it hard for the church to win friends and influence people. 
God had already torn down the middle wall of partition between Jew and Gentile. These Judaizers, they were building it right back up again and building it far higher than it ever was before. Paul said in Romans 12, if it is possible, it's not always possible, but he says, if it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Romans 12, verse 18. I want to go through this section here and look at the Judaizers, what they were doing, and and apply it in our own situation. He says, avoid foolish disputes. Judaism had all kinds of foolish disputes, and if you read the Talmud, you can find out about those. Um, And I've not read the whole Talmud. I've read about a thousand pages in it, but they had disputes like how you cut your fingernails and where you disposed of your fingernails. They said, don't dispose it on the ground because if a pregnant woman walks over it, she might miscarry. And they had all kinds of weird things like that. There were groups that were uh, fiercely debating each other, you know, uh, were angels circumcised or not? And some said they were and some said they weren't. And uh, some said, do angels keep the Sabbath? And, And others said, no, they don't keep the Sabbath. There are just hundreds and hundreds of these debates in the Talmud that don't flow out of the Scripture. They're just vain imaginings from their heads. And um, what Paul is basically saying is that if you want to be irrelevant, then go ahead and dispute on things like that. But I don't want you to be irrelevant in society. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29, lays down the basic principle. It says this, The secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things which are revealed belong to us and to our children that we may do all of the words of this law. He said, if God's law hasn't revealed it, it's just opinion, okay? It's not something that you even should worry about debating about. But if it's in the word, then it's something that we are to do. We're to live out. Neither Moses nor Paul wanted their godliness to be deflected by extra-biblical disputes. And so our ethics, our system of what is right and what is wrong, it needs to flow from the Scripture and from the Scripture alone. Now, you might think, well, yeah, we do that. We're we're Scripture-based people. But this is the thing we need to be praying about for the evangelical church because it is so filled with people whose consciences are bound by extra-biblical things that it's making it difficult for the gospel to have an impact uh, outside uh, of the church. Now, if the scripture does address it, it's not foolish, right? There isn't anything in uh, in the scripture that's foolish. You can debate about that, and it's a solid debate. But it's things like when I was growing up, I remember them um, saying, and I was just a kid, I couldn't grow a beard, but they said, uh, it's sinful to have a beard. And I was thinking to myself, no, wait a shake, didn't they pluck out Christ's beard? And I was trying to figure this out, but they weren't arguing from the scripture. They were just saying, you can't be like the hippies. And it was always a, you can't be like this, you can't be like that, rather than arguing from the scripture. And there are hundreds and hundreds of debates like this in the in, in, in the evangelical church. Paul says, the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy God is the Scripture. Otherwise, it's just your preference versus my preference. It's a useless debate. Next word, genealogies. Now, Paul is not saying that you ought not to study the genealogies of the Old Testament. Okay, 1 Timothy 3, 16 to 17 says, all Scripture is profitable, right? So that includes the genealogies of the Old Testament. Uh, He says that's very, very profitable. What he is arguing against here was a class system that had been set up by the Judaizers where if you could trace your genealogy all the way back to Abraham, you were in the top class. 
Uh, if you could trace it back partway and knew which tribe you were from, you know, you were second class, but that's still pretty good. If you were a Jew, but you couldn't trace your genealogies very well, then maybe a third class. And if you were a Gentile, man, you're off the radar map altogether. And so what he's arguing against, he's saying, I don't have any problems with you guys taking a certain sense of, of uh, appreciation and pride in your ancestry, but when you make that a test of fellowship, which is exactly what these Judaizers were doing, you're destroying your effectiveness in this culture. Now, let me give you an example of how this worked in uh, modern America. Uh, I spent two years in the Free Presbyterian Church of Scotland, and you know, in many ways, it was, a, it was a good church, and there were a few people there that tried to make me feel welcome. But it was painfully obvious that if you didn't have a Mac in front of your name or some other you know, Scottish name, you didn't know what your tartan was, and uh, you didn't know what uh, clan that you came from, you know, you really were a second-class citizen. Now, there was another church that I went to that you walked through the parking lot on Sunday mornings, and there were bumper stickers. I am not kidding. There were bumper stickers all over these vehicles that said, if you're not Dutch, you're not much. <laughs> and I was thinking, wow, what a great welcome, you know. I feel real welcome in this church here. But that's kind of the idea that he's talking about there. Now, this can have applications elsewhere. You know, the debate between the Southern Secession and the North and things like that. If we're not careful, that could get into a, a situation where people, if they're not from the right state, don't feel welcome, right? We welcome Southerners. We welcome Northerners, right? But um, that's the kind of thing he is saying. Guys, no disputing over genealogy is making people who don't even have a genealogy feel uncomfortable, okay? He goes on to say, contentions and strivings about the law. Now, this has been so misused and abused by people. Which law is he talking about? Is he talking about the law which he mandated in chapter 2, or is he talking about the, how does he word it, in chapter 1, verse... Um, uh, verse 14, Jewish fables and commandments of men who turn from the truth. Well, obviously, the way I phrased it, you know exactly which one he's talking about. He's talking about the Talmudic law of the Pharisees. They added to the Bible all kinds of legalistic uh, regulations that you didn't find anywhere uh, in the Bible. And he says, I don't want you endlessly debating with these people because there's no way of settling it. You stick to the Scripture and to the Scriptures alone, and if they're arguing outside of that, they're arguing from man's authority, not from human authority. And I can tell you that the legalism of fundamentalism, and in some senses we're akin to fundamentalism, right? But fundamentalists so frequently have, you know, you, you can ignore all God's laws, but don't, don't dance, don't drink, don't smoke, don't wear lipstick, don't wear earrings, don't wear a beard, you know. I mean, they've just got a long list of rules. Those things have made it very difficult for the church of Jesus Christ to have an impact in our culture because that's what many pagans think is Christianity. They see all of this ridiculous stuff out there and they just broad brush paint all Christians as being weird like that. Now, we're weird enough on our own, right? We're, we, don't, we don't need all of these extra things that these Judaizers were bringing on. Now, don't give up hope. You know, just because the world thinks we're strange because they pick out the worst features and they put it into a film and people get that impression of Christianity, doesn't mean a thing. They did exactly the same thing back in the first century. And the church overcame it. They overcame it by following Paul's directions here and eventually they conquered Rome. 
despite persecution, by the time of Constantine, I've mentioned this to you before, 50% of the population eventually became Christian. That was before Constantine made Christianity legal. Okay, so they overcame. They overcame using Paul's methodology, and that can be done today. Okay, um, let's see here. Anyway, he goes on, and uh, he says all of these things are unprofitable and useless. The Scriptures, verse 8, very profitable. Then he says these things outside the Scripture, all of these debates, they're not profitable at all. Now, all of these areas contributed to social tensions, both inside and outside the church, and some people just will not quit an argument. Uh, you can say to them, you know, this really is in the area of liberty. It's outside of uh, what the Scripture has mandated, and so let's, you know, let live, and we're, we'll definitely accommodate your views on this, but they just keep on hitting on it and keep on hitting it and hammering on it until they cause tension in the church or in the family or in whatever club that they're a part of uh, that, that is out there. And so the next verse goes on to say, verse 10, reject the device of man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. Man, <laughs> those are harsh words. Uh, and yet, I think they're needed words. They're needed words if the church is to show a united front uh, to the world. We cannot have the kind, of, um, uh, the, the kind of bickering and division and fighting against each other over non-essentials that many times goes on. And by the way, this applies to cults. I would encourage you when you're dealing with Jehovah's Witnesses and cults and they come to your door, yes, talk to them and witness to them. But on the second time that they come, what I do is I, I tell them, you know, the scripture says I'm really not allowed to talk to you more than two times unless you repent. This may be your last opportunity to hear the gospel and I plead with you to repent. And so even uh, my rejecting of them is an appeal to their heart, desiring, you know, that they will come to Christ and say, the reason for this is because I take doctrine seriously, and I take your welfare seriously as well. So I would encourage you to take that, that, that verse there seriously. A third piece of help that Paul brings is leadership training and deployment. Take a look at verse 12. When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Send Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their journey with haste, that they may lack nothing. Titus needed to go away for some training with Paul. He went to conference, as it were. Uh, Artemis and Tychicus had been sent to this work. Zenos and Apollos were already there helping. And the point is that no one person can do everything. We need the help. We need the expertise of others. We have benefited hugely from pastors in other cities who have put on conferences, who have published materials. We want to bless the church as well with conferences, materials in this, in this city. And so uh, leadership training and deployment, I think, is a very, very important point. No one church can do it alone. Fourth way in which Paul helped was with the legal involvement of Zenos and Apollos. Now, I don't think there's any group of people that gets uh, slammed with more jokes than lawyers. But, uh, you know, you guys who are studying for the bar exam, you can take heart, you know, comfort from the fact that Paul counted some lawyers as his dearest and closest friends and allies, right? And so uh, he was not too spiritual to avoid the legal issues that the church was facing. Zenos uh, means... 
uh, gift of Zeus. Uh, he was a pagan that had been converted, and he was a pagan who had studied law. He knew Roman law. He was a Roman lawyer whose services had been needed in the Roman courts. Now they're needed elsewhere. Apollos was a Jewish lawyer. Not only was he expert in the Jewish law, but he was an orator. Uh, it says in Acts 18, 24, he's an eloquent man, mighty in the scriptures. Now, why were they needed here in Crete? It was not simply to deliver a letter from Paul. They weren't just errand boys. Uh, they were going there because their services were needed on that island. And um, <clears throat> their uh, services were needed in tandem. I think what was going on here is they've already been working in the courts and Paul is telling this congregation, now guys, don't get feisty and undo everything that these lawyers have helped you to achieve. Sometimes lawyers have to tell, tell, tell their clients, just be quiet, you know, be quiet. You're making your case worse, all right? And so that's basically what he had been telling them to do. Now, just as a historical note, the reason why they had to work in tandem, Apollos and Zenos, is because the Jews and the, and the Romans were working in tandem for a two-year time. Now, this is so ironic because the Jews hated the Romans, and uh, they had nothing good to say about the Romans. They didn't see eye to eye. And yet during that two-year period, they had a common enemy. And the Jews appealed to Nero and said, we'll help you take care of these Christians. In fact, we'll bring them to the courts. And they did. And so both Apollos, who knew Jewish law, and Zenos, who knew Roman law, were working in the court systems, helping these Christians out. They needed to be working in tandem because both the Jewish and the, and the Romans were after them. And uh, this is one of the reasons why Christians need an equivalent to the ACLU. And there are a couple of Christian law, uh, law organizations that have helped Christians out in this, in this way. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a, a great thing. Another bit of counsel given by Paul, it's already alluded to a couple of weeks ago, but it's a working church membership and specifically to be involved in good works in the community. Chapter 3, verse 1 says to be ready for every good work. Verse 8, that those who believe in God should be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable. Verse 14, he says, let our people also learn to maintain good works, to meet urgent needs, that they may not be unfruitful. And the church did exactly that, and they were not unfruitful. They grew like crazy. Uh, during the time... Uh, immediately after this epistle, the next several years, there was earthquake after earthquake. There was uh, famines. There was all kinds of plagues and wars and things. What, what happened is the Christians were the first people on the scene there, clearing away the rubble, giving food to people, helping in mercy ministries, and it just gave an incredible savor of Christ to the world. The world had been saying, remember we saw last week that Nero had spread all of these lies about them, that they were haters of the human race. And people would be kind of puzzled. Haters of the human race, it seems like they're doing things that are in the wel uh, welfare of the society. And they said, that, you know, they're the sewage of the Orantes, and they would see the integrity. And it just didn't line up, and it made Nero look foolish, and it made the propaganda look really foolish. And so he says, I want you guys involved out there. Tertullian reports the amazed comment of one pagan who said, see how they love one another. They're just blown away by that. Now, we dealt with that adequately, I think, in another sermon, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. But Christ said, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's what Paul wants. That, he says, if you do that, you will be fruitful. One last principle 
was the encouragement that came from other churches and presbyteries. When one church was under attack, the other churches came around and they, and they tried to minister in their lives. One of the strategies that the ACLU has taken over the past two or three decades <clears throat> is to target an independent small church, has no finances, can't defend themselves, and take them to court over some principle, make a... a um, precedent, thank you, a precedent out of them, and then they can apply that precedent broader to the bigger churches. And so one of the things that the church has got to do, and that's what these law organizations have been set up to help uh, to achieve, is it doesn't matter what denomination they're from. It doesn't matter that they have bad-mouthed us. No, we've got to come there beside them to love them and encourage them when they're in a battlefield. That's one of the things that grieved me about the Louisville situation up there. Certainly, there were some weird things that were going on, right? But the church has just bailed out. They wouldn't come beside it. In fact, they badmouthed them. The church needs to come together. Now, there's other ways in which uh, the church can be encouraging. Uh, simple communication with a letter can mean a world to a church that's hurting. It can just mean a, a world that others are praying for them and, and thinking of them and love them. In verse 15... Of this letter, it says, All who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Uh, for me, one of the highlights at Presbytery is when all of the churches report, you know, their struggles and the prayer requests and the needs, and we pray for one another. And we spend a half a day once a month just in the Nebraska churches doing the same thing. There's a, there, there's a strengthening that happens when churches come alongside of each other in that way. And, you know, what's good for the church is also true of the individual. Uh, if you've been tempted to not come to church or uh, whatever your reasons might be to just be individualistic, uh, think of these same things. We need regular teaching of God's Word. We need church government, you know, the elders to oversee and to hold us accountable. We need the skills and the resources of others. We need a working membership. We need the moral and the practical help of one believer with another. And so, even though we're ending this series, if we could just sum up and say... It's my prayer that our church would make an impact in this city that is altogether out of proportion to its numbers because we're taking God's word seriously and we're seeking to do it by his almighty power. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this book. And what an encouragement it's been to our church. I just pray that you would grow our church and help us to be encouraged in your word, to take it seriously in everything that it says and in all that we do. I pray, Father, that uh, we would indeed have an impact upon this city. We long to see this city becoming a Christian city, uh, honoring you and exalting you rather than uh, honoring and exalting all kinds of immoral principles. Uh, we bless you, Father, that uh, our labors in the Lord are not in vain, as you have said in 1 Corinthians 15. And so, Father, we commit ourselves to doing what we can. And I pray that each one of the people here would be encouraged by the grace of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Thank <clears throat> you.